I was 10 years old, and uh, like a lot of 10-year-old boys, this time of year, I was playing Little League Baseball. And that was the one time in my life that my brother and I were on the exact same baseball team. He was two years older than me, so we didn't usually get to play in the same team. So it was a great year for us, and we got to the end of the year, <clears throat> the end of the baseball season, and our coaches took us camping. It was such a cool thing. In those days, remember, this is the early 70s, right? So they could just throw as many kids in a vehicle as they wanted to. You could put 20 kids in the back of a pickup and take them on the freeway. You could tape kids to your luggage rack, whatever you wanted to do. There was no seatbelt laws. There was no car seats. So <clears throat> a bunch of us are just loaded in this uh, Dodge van, and they take us up the mountains to camp. Now, each of our parents had given us a dollar or two just in case anything came up that we needed to spend money on while we were camping. And it got to be Sunday. We had been there all weekend. Sunday morning, we're leaving about 11 o'clock. And I remember them telling us, hey, we're going to be leaving in about an hour. And we all started realizing we haven't spent our money. What are we going to do? We're not bringing this home and giving it back to our parents. So we decided now, in those days, this will tell you how old I am. In those days, uh, there were vending machines, uh, very, very common vending machines that had these small little uh, glass soda bottles. And, and if you're my age, you'll remember this. They were like grape and orange and strawberry and cherry and lemon lime and just sugary water, basically. And uh, those sodas were 10 cents, and you bought them in a vending machine for 10 cents. So we all cashed in our dollars for dimes, and we put our dimes in the machine and bought as many of those as we could. And we were just guzzling these sodas before it was time to leave. And then we all piled into the van and started heading down the windy road. I bet you can imagine where this is going, right? <laughs> there were kids in the back behind the back seat of the van, just on the floor back there. And uh, one of those kids threw up. And, and the way we knew it was not just the sound, but the other two kids who came flying over the back seat at that time. And then the smell hits, and you're like, oh, no. And so they pull over. They're cleaning it all up. They move that kid to the front seat, roll the window down, put us back in, and we head down. It's not two minutes before the next kid throws up, and then the next kid. And it was just a free-for-all. Every kid is just throwing up this sugary soda that we've been drinking, one after another after another. And they kept moving us from seat to seat. I remember I was sitting next to our coach. He had a big afro. And, uh, and my brother was in the seat in front of us. The two popped out windows were open. He leaned out the one window and threw up. It came back in our window and hit us in the face. It covered my coach's hair. It looked like a spider web going through his hair. I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, we had this great plan, right? We're going to spend our money. We're going to drink this soda. And we got it all figured out. We knew how to do it. The only problem was we thought we knew what was best for ourselves, but we didn't have a clue. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like you know exactly what's coming, you know exactly what to do, only to find out later that you didn't really have a clue? <laughs> Today is Palm Sunday. I don't know if you realize that. I hope you're waving palm branches. Uh, it is Palm Sunday today. We're going to be talking about Palm Sunday. And uh, we're going to be looking at a Palm Sunday passage. But I want you to understand a little bit about what happened on Palm Sunday. Because imagine, it's Passover week. It's the beginning of Passover week. Jerusalem is beginning to swell with people. And everybody's waiting for Jesus to arrive. 
Everybody's talking about him. You know, he had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And so after raising Lazarus from the dead, everybody is now becoming convinced. I think this guy really is the Messiah. He, he can calm the sea. He can heal a leper. And now we've seen him raise the dead. This guy has to be the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one we've been waiting for. And so they're waiting uh, in the entrance of the city of Jerusalem for the moment when Jesus arrives, when suddenly someone comes running into town and shouts, He's coming! The Lord is coming! He's on His way! And people start pouring down from their homes and out of the buildings, and they just fill the street, and the streets are just filled, filled, filled with people. Now, Jerusalem at the time of Passover, it's already a crowded city, but every Jew comes to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And so literally at that time, the city of Jerusalem's population would swell to 10 or 20 times its normal amount. Guys, this is the opposite of social distancing, right? People are just like sardines crammed in on top of each other in the streets. It's like Mardi Gras without the booze, without a lot of Mardi Gras stuff. It's like, it's like a Lakers a championship parade. Oh, some of you aren't old enough to remember what a Lakers championship parade is like. But, but it's just people filling the streets, right? And everybody's celebrating and everybody's thrilled and everybody's excited. And that's what's going on. Everybody is anticipating this is going to be the greatest moment of their lives because they're waiting for the Messiah. They now are convinced he is the Messiah. And that means he's going to set them free. It means he's going to overthrow Rome. And so they thought they knew how all this was supposed to work. But just like many of us, they didn't have a clue. Take your Bibles and, and go with me to the book of John. The Gospel of John is in your New Testament. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. I want you to turn to John chapter 12 and follow along as I read, beginning in John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees, and they went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed his signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see... You're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus is coming into town, and if you read the other gospel accounts, it gives an even longer version where it describes how the people are shouting and singing. People are throwing their coats and the palm branches in the streets so that the donkey doesn't even have to step on dirt. They're honoring him. They're glorifying him, and they're shouting. And what are they shouting? Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna! And we're used to that term now because we've seen it in the Bible. But what does it mean? It means save us. They're crying out and they're saying, we believe you're the Savior. So save us. Now when they're thinking save us, they're thinking something very different than what he had in mind. They're thinking they need to be 
um, delivered from the power of Rome. They're thinking, they have expectations. They're expecting the fall of Rome to begin with the coming of the Messiah. They're expecting a conquering king. And so when Jesus rides into town, they're shouting, save us. They're calling him the king of Israel. But as the week went on, with each passing day, the people became more and more disillusioned. He wasn't doing the things they thought he had come to do. They became more and more confused. They're starting to become afraid. And eventually they became angry. Until just a few days later, this same crowd who had been shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This same crowd is now outside of Pilate's balcony and they're shouting, crucify, crucify, crucify. See, this was a scary time for the people of Israel. They're under the control of Rome. Their futures are completely uncertain. They couldn't enjoy the way of life that they had wanted to have. I don't know if any of you can relate to that right now. <laughs> they wanted Jesus to save them from the Romans. Hosanna! But Jesus didn't come to save them from the Romans. He came to save them from their sin. He hadn't come to set them free from the oppressive laws of Rome. He had come to set them free from the law of sin and death. But the people didn't understand that. You know, in life I've discovered that it's easy to celebrate Jesus when things are going great and you know exactly what's going on. But when things go tough, it doesn't always work out the same way. I'm sure you've watched a football game or something like that where there's a big game and the team pulls it out at the end and the sideline reporter goes and interviews the star of the team afterwards. And every now and then you'll see the star of the team will say, I want to give all glory to God. I want to thank God for what he did to allow us to win. You know, that I'm always encouraged when I see them do that. But what really encourages me, what really impresses me, is when they interview the losing coach, the losing quarterback. And he says... I want to give all glory to God. I want to give him all praise and thanks because God is the one who has blessed us. See, it's one thing to praise him in the victory. It's another thing to be enduring the struggle and praise him even then. I was thinking about this, you know, in the Old Testament, right before the book of Psalms, take your Bible and turn to the book of Job. In the book of Job, I know that most of us have heard of Job. We know a little bit about his story. I want to tell you, we're going to Job chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. It's right before the book of Psalms in your Old Testament. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. As we're introduced to Job, we're told what he's like. He's blameless. This is a guy who lives a righteous life. This is a good man, a holy man, a man of God. He's blameless. He's, he's upright. He's uh, fearing God. He's turning away from evil. All of these things are said about him. He's like the star of the Old Testament era, such a man of God. And then 
In the next few verses, it tells us about all the blessings that God has given him. He's been blessed with wealth. He's been blessed with a great business. He's been blessed with an incredible family. All of his kids, he loves them all, and they all love him. And and God is just blessing them in every possible way. And then we get to verse 6, and it starts telling us about what's going on in the background in the unseen story. And Satan has come to make a request of God. And he's mocking Job and saying, well, anybody would be an upright man if you bless him. But what happens if you allow him to have some hardship? And God gives Satan permission to test Job. And now Job is about to undergo some terrible stuff. And in the next several verses, what you get is this disaster story of Job. Everything he had is taken away from him. He loses his business, he loses his home, he loses his children, uh, he loses his wealth. Everything he had come to count on is taken away from him in just a few verses between, say, verses 13 and 20. And, And then we find him in verse 21, and he's without anything. All of his loved ones are dead. Everything has been taken from him. He's undergoing this horrific, horrific trial. And I love what it says in Job 1.21. Because Job responds, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's easy to cling to God. It's easy to praise Him. It's easy to honor Him when He's doing everything you would expect. But when God throws your curveball, when God allows you to endure some difficulty, that's an entirely different thing. That's what was going on with the people of Jerusalem when Jesus wasn't doing what they expected him to do. What do you do when you cry out to God in a hard time and you don't get the answer you're looking for? What do you do when you beg God, please God, take care of this, and the problem persists? Do you get mad at God? you stop trusting God? you stop serving God? See, here's the thing about God. He is faithful. But He doesn't always do what you would expect Him to do. His plan might be quite different than yours. But his plan is always best. Right now, a lot of us are hurting. A lot of us are confused. We can't really see why God's allowing this difficult time in our lives. And for some of us, it's harder than, other, than it is for others. And, and we begin to get discouraged at a time like this. And that is understandable. But I want to encourage you to remember something. I want to encourage you to remember how great our God is. I want you to remember how wise our God is, how trustworthy he's always been, how powerful he is, how loving he is, how faithful he is. Remember the children of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt and through the 10 plagues, God delivered them, right? And they left Egypt rejoicing, carrying uh, carrying treasures with them. And they leave Egypt praising God and rejoicing. And they praise him as they're leaving. And then they come to the Red Sea. And there is a a body of water in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. And the praises stop and they begin to complain about what's happening. They just lose their faith. 
But even when they lost their faith, guess what? God still parted the sea. When they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness, they lost their hope. But even when they lost their hope, guess what? God brought water from a rock and manna from the sky and met their needs. When they, when they finally got to the promised land and they saw the walls surrounding Jericho, they shook in their boots. They wondered, why would God bring us all this distance just to have us killed outside of Jericho? But regardless of their lack of faith, those walls still came tumbling down. God's faithful. I don't think any of us saw this trial coming. And we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how much damage it will do. We're reaching the point now where most of us know somebody who's been severely impacted through illness. We don't know how much longer it's going to go on, but we do know who God is. And we know that he is good. We know that he's loving. We know that he's powerful. We know that he's faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And I can promise you this. His plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. Let me just say that again. His plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. So maybe it's time for us to let go of our plans a little bit and put ourselves in the hands of a God who has an even better plan for us. He intends to use this difficult season to do something great. We can trust him. So as we head into Holy Week, let's remember what the crowd in Jerusalem seemed to forget. God has a plan, and he's doing something great. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He's not forgotten you. He will never leave you or forsake you. It's just that you don't understand his plan yet. But hang in there. He's got this. With each day of Holy Week, things got harder and harder for the people as they saw Jesus not doing what they expected him to do. They didn't understand, and their hope slipped away little by little. But God had a plan. It involved a very, very dark Friday, and it involved a very, very bright Sunday. But I guess I'm getting ahead of myself, right? Let's take it one day at a time. I want to let you know that during this week, you're going to be seeing something every day from Grace Fellowship that is going to walk you toward the cross on Friday. And on Friday, we're going to gather in our homes online and we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. So you're going to need to get some uh, juice. You're going to need to get some bread. And you're going to need to plan to gather with your family on Friday night because we're going to worship the Lord together and take the Lord's Supper on Good Friday so I want to invite you to that. You'll be hearing more about it. But we're going to walk through this together. And it may get darker before the light of dawn. But I have a feeling that by this time next week, we're going to have a whole new perspective. Because God has a plan, whether we understand it or not. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much for your goodness, your faithfulness, and the truth of your word. We thank you that no matter whether we understand or not, we can trust you. We thank you that you hold all power and authority. 
And we thank you that your plan for our lives is better than our plan for our lives. But God, help us to let go of our plans and hold tightly to your hand during this time. We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.